Ah, come on, James. Cheer up. Take a drink. These things happen. Oh, I know. But I didn't think it had ever happened to me. I guess I'm going to live to regret it. My life is simply broken apart. Heck, no, it hasn't. Marriages are breaking up every day. Folk, get over it. Look, I'll tell you what you need. What? You need a complete break, and I've got just the idea. What about a trip to Great Britain, huh? We can rustle up the money somehow. It's Queen Victoria's Jubilee year. In June, they're having a big celebration. Uh, 21st of June is the great day. What say we go over and join in, huh? Present the stories of Sherlock Holmes. The Battledon Estate. It was 1887, Queen Victoria's Jubilee year, and the spring was quite perfect. The days were sunny and bright, daffodils bloomed in the parks as workmen became busy cleaning statues and public buildings, and London began to wear a festive air. Sherlock Holmes had just returned from the capitals of Europe, where he'd been working on a case of international importance. He was extremely pleased to be back home and sat for long hours at our windows in Baker Street, looking down at the traffic and the people in the street below. Ah, I must admit, it's very pleasant to be back in London and surrounded by all the old familiar things, Watson. One tries not to apply sweeping statements and generalization about other nationalities, but the fact is that the Germans are heavy and humorless, the Italians are excitable, and the French unpredictable. The French women do dress better than others, and they can make a wonderful meal out of hardly anything at all. Greg, your stay on the continent makes you appreciate the English homes. Personally, I'm never really happy when I'm abroad. America, well, perhaps, is acceptable. Even there, I feel out of place. Right, it's a vast and interesting country, but for the observant, Americans are quite easy to pick out in a crowd. Uh, for instance, Watson, the lady across the road was just paid off the cabbie of that handsome... Now, she could well be one of our American cousins. Uh-huh. What makes you say that? Well, she's unfamiliar with the currency, you see. The cabbie had to show her which coins were which, so she doesn't live in England. Yet she conversed with him fluently enough, which shows that they've been talking in English. She's smartly and expensively dressed, but she's carrying a large buckskin bag instead of the conventional British handbag. It's attached to a length of rawhide carried from the shoulder. When I was in America last year, I saw many women with those bags. I've never seen an English woman use one. Ah, she's looking at the numbers of the houses. I think Watson is about to have a visitor. What's the betting against her being an American lady? Hmm? Well, she looked quite English to me, but Holmes was right about her visiting us. She walked up the steps with a confident air. The doorbell rang. I remembered it was Mrs. Hudson's day off, so I went down and opened the door. I found myself looking into an amazingly bright pair of blue eyes. This, with a mass of black hair over an oval face and gentle smile, created as lovely a picture as I'd seen that spring. She requested an interview with Holmes in a soft American accent. So, Holmes was right again. Up in our sitting room, she introduced herself. My name is Charlotte Basildon. I'm from Boston, the USA. 
I must thank you very much, Mr. Holmes, for granting me this interview without an appointment. It's my pleasure. You found me at an unusual time. I have nothing important to work upon. I take it that you wish to ask my advice upon some matter of importance. A delicate matter that requires a discreet inquiry, perhaps? Oh, that is quite correct. I am unfamiliar with such procedures in this country. I have, of course, heard of you. And I know that while you have often worked with the police, you are not part of them. And so anything I say will not be repeated. I am most anxious to avoid a scandal. You see, nothing criminal has happened, at least so far. Oh, please, I understand. Uh, tell me what's troubling you. Uh, from the very beginning, when your anxiety started, try not to leave anything out, even though it may seem very unimportant. Very well. But it is hard to say when I began to worry. You see... The position is this. My husband is heir to a large estate. He is the great-nephew of Lucas C. Basildon, the Texas cattle millionaire. L.C., as he is popularly known by, has never married. He is now a very old man and quite ill. He has no near relatives except my husband James and another great-nephew, Philip. Philip has proved himself just a no-good. He's a wastrel, a knockabout. What we call smart Alec. In fact, the very reverse of my husband. Mm, I see. Carry on. James is a very independent man. When young, he scorned Elsie's wealth and influence and went up to Australia to make his own way. The family lost touch with him. So much so that they assumed he was dead. During this time, Philip led a life of ease and luxury. He got into debt. But his prospects were extremely good. He was to inherit Elsie's vast estate. He went to a moneylender and raised a huge sum of money. He speculated, and with his usual carelessness, lost most of it. And then your husband returned from the dead, as it were? Quite. You realize what this means, Mr. Holmes? Oh, yes. Being the eldest and nearest, he's able to claim the estates when Lucas C. Basildon dies. Phillips will be out in the cold. And the moneylender will have absolutely no chance of getting that vast sum plus interest back again. So this means between the moneylender and his money, there only stands your husband's life. Uh, proceed, please. Well, old Elsie is very ill. The doctors hold out very little hope. And, well, the fact is that I am convinced that during the next few days, an attempt will be made upon my husband's life. And the attempt will be made here, in London. Mm. Your husband is in London. Do you know where he's staying? No, but he is here. He came over with a man called Peter Cottrell. Peter Cottrell is in the pay of Amos Feltman, the moneylender. James does not know this. He thinks Peter is a good friend. When James and I agreed to separate, Peter saw his chance. He comforted James and suggested this trip to England. Since I left my husband, I have found out many things. One is that Peter Cockrell stands to gain $20,000 if the estate goes to Philip and not James. In other words, $20,000 is the blood money the moneylender will pay him to kill James. Uh, I see. And James thinks Peter is his best friend. A very nasty trap. But forewarned is forearmed. All we have to do is to find your husband. Have you any means of identification? Oh, I have a photograph of my husband. It is here in my bag. Uh, here it is. And on the back is his name and address in Boston. That is our old address. I am staying at the Westbury Hotel in New Bond Street. You can reach me there any time. Please. Please, Mr. Holmes. You will see what you can do to help me. Won't you? Very well, Mrs. Battleton. I will try to help you. Thank you. I I would stress the fact that I don't wish the police or the newspapers to know about this. It would create a dreadful scandal. And that would easily find its way back to the States. I quite understand. I shall see what I can do. Now, may I offer you coffee before my friend Watson calls a cab to take you back to your hotel? 
Have no fear. We shall be in touch quite soon. I saw Charlotte Basildon out and into a handsome cab. I could tell she was most grateful to Holmes, but not at all sure of his chances of success. I was anxious to resume the rounds of my patients, but I had to ask Holmes what he intended to do about this most curious case. I shall, of course, first check all the fashionable hotels along the park and Piccadilly. The two visitors, Peter Cottrell and James Basildon, will be using their own names. Cottrell dare not do otherwise for fear of rousing his friend's suspicions. They will also be using a bank near at hand. One cannot live without money, especially on a trip from America. They should be quite easy to trace. Yes, I shall find them all right. And then? Then I think I shall take a stroll through Soho. If Peter Cottrell is over here with the express intention of killing his best friend, then he will not do the killing himself. He'll hire someone to do the job for him. And that is why I shall seek out our man known as Raoul the Ferret. Raoul the Ferret? Extraordinary name. Yes, he's an extraordinary man. I think I know just where to find him. Excuse me now, Watson. There's much work to do. Hey, hey, watch it. Watch where you're going. Oh, it weren't my fault. You should keep your feet yourself. Oh, is that so? Now, you look here. If you want to make anything of it, let's get out of this crowd. Yes, that's not a bad idea, Raoul. I don't think we can talk very comfortably in this noise. Let's move down the side street. What the wife? It isn't Mr. Sherlock Holmes. That's correct. I haven't seen you for some months. Are you busy? So, so, so. Why? I can accommodate you if it's worthwhile, of course. What's it this time? Information? Of course. I've reason to believe that an American gentleman by the name of James Basildon is about to meet his end here in London. He's staying at the Grodin House Hotel with another American, Peter Cottrell. Cottrell is the man who is behind the assassination. He must be looking for someone to do the job. Heard any rumors, Ralph? None at all. Well, I could ask a few questions. I should be very grateful. And my client will pay handsomely. Here, this is a photograph of the intended victim. Ah, uh, Grosvenor uh, House Hotel, you say? Yes, that's correct. But you'll have to move very quickly. In the inquiries I made this morning, the two men are due to leave for a tour of Scotland within the next two days. They're only booked in at the hotel until the day after tomorrow. I know that Cottrell went to his bank at noon today and changed a thousand American dollars into British sovereigns. Now, this would be the payment for the killing. Mm. Well, that's all the money talks, eh? Well, if there's any talking going on, I'll make sure I hear it. <laughs> now, worry, Mr. Holmes, if there's a job being planned, then I shall find out all about it. Good. But as I say, you must move fast. If Cottrell has the ready cash and if they're moving out the day after tomorrow, then it's clear that the murder is planned for tomorrow night. Get to work, Ralph. Live up to your name. Ferret it out. And quit. I was extremely busy for the rest of that day and saw little of Holmes, who seemed quite preoccupied and didn't mention the Basil and Estate case at all, even over breakfast the next morning. But at lunchtime, when I came back to Baker Street, there was a rather scruffy-looking man loitering around the steps of 221B. He inquired after Holmes and said his name was Raoul and he had something of importance to impart. I knew immediately what it was about and showed him up to our rooms. There, over a tasty luncheon of bubble and squeak, Raoul the Ferret told us all he'd uncovered. As it to be tonight, uh, Mr. Holmes, the man who's doing the job is uh, Diggs Baker. Known to have received a hundred quid in advance, and the balance is uh, when it's all over. Yes. Where and how, Raoul? Somewhere in Greek Street, uh, outside one of the restaurants, I think. Which one? I don't know. Diggs is one of his favourite hangouts. A place known as Aristos. He's the most likely. Can't tell you the, 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 the time either, but uh, could be any time between eight o'clock and midnight. Yes, I should imagine the later the better. I doubt if it'll be before nine. Good work, Raoul. Now, here is what I wish you to do. You'll find someone to give you a hand, as this cannot be stopped without plenty of help. I need three men to create a street scene. 
Now listen very carefully. Having enlisted these men, you will arrange to patrol Greek Street from eight o'clock onwards. Station yourself outside, Aristos, and I shall arrive to give you final instructions. Now don't worry, there'll be no police interference and as little trouble as possible. Now, finish up the Babylon Squeak. There's a lot for us to do. Uh, Watson, I take it that you'll have completed your day's work by six o'clock and will be willing to join in the evening's activity? <laughs> if you try to prevent me, there'll be trouble, Holmes. <laughs> Good. Very well. We shall meet later, and from seven o'clock onwards, we shall be outside the Grosvenor House Hotel. Yes, it could be a very long and quite dangerous evening, so both of you come prepared. I found it hard to concentrate while my work for the rest of that afternoon. I simply couldn't see how Holmes could prevent an underworld crime of this magnitude without a sensation and perhaps bloodshed. However, I agreed to pocket my service revolver when we left Baker Street, and in the warmth of that April evening, I stood with Holmes opposite the Grosvenor Hotel. It's a good job the evening's so mild, Holmes. At least we can sit on one of the park benches without arousing curiosity. Yes, 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 that is fortunate. Uh, but can't you tell me what to anticipate? I mean, what form do you think this murder plot would take? I can't say. I am, however, fairly sure that Peter Cottrell will not be actively involved. That means that James Basildon will somehow be lured into Soho. Yes, that's why we're watching, Watson. If only we knew what was taking place at this very moment between those two men, we should have a clearer idea of how to go about things. I'm only sure that Peter Cottrell is about to put his deadly plan into action. Basildon will, of course, not suspect a thing. I'm sorry that I have to go out straight away, James, but uh, I must try to fix up this unexpected business with an export firm. Oh, I thought you'd done all that. Well, I couldn't finalize it till after hours. Look, it won't take long. Look, I have a table booked at Aristos for 8 o'clock. It's that great little place in Soho. You know, we went there a couple of nights back. Why don't you go there? I'll join you as soon as I fix things up. Well, I can wait here. As a matter of fact, I, I don't care if we don't go out at all. Oh, come on. It's our last night in London until Jubilee Day, and then the city will be crowded. We can have a leisurely meal and maybe fix ourselves up with a couple of girls. <laughs> There's some great lookers around Aristos. Oh, no. I, I kind of dislike that casual stuff. Ever since I left Charlotte, I... Well, I've been thinking I made a mess of my love life. Oh, no. Come on, at least let's have a decent meal out. We came over here to cheer you up, remember? Oh, oh all right. I'll meet you at the restaurant at 8 o'clock. But don't keep me waiting there too long, will you, Pete? I'll be there just as soon as I can. I'll go order you handsome right now. See you later, James. And don't flirt with too many girls till I get there. There, Watson. See? The handsome cab is waiting. That is Peter Cottrell getting into it. Quickly, take the other cab and follow him. Stay near him and report back to me in Greek Street as soon as you find out where he is. Now hurry now, Watson, hurry. I did as I was told, and it was a most curious experience. For nearly an hour, my cabby followed Gottrell's handsome about the streets of London. Had I not known otherwise, I should have thought the man was simply on a sightseeing tour. We trotted our way round the Tower of London, St. Paul's and the Embankment, and along to Buckingham Palace, before ending back in Park Lane, where Cottrell alighted at the Grosvenor Hotel again. He had clearly simply been killing time. It was eight o'clock. I inquired from the hotel reception and was told that Mr. Cottrell had just come in, and Mr. Basildon had left half an hour before. I took the hansom to Greek Street. Ah, there you are, Watson. What's your news? Cottrell led me a rare chase all over London, stopping nowhere, just riding about until he ended up back at the hotel. Yes, that's much as I anticipated. Meanwhile, Basildon is in that restaurant. I've been in and he's sitting at a table in a corner and looking very annoyed. Also in the restaurant is the man Raoul the Ferret, as identified as Biggs Baker. Gracious Holmes, you're supposing the killing takes place in there? Not in a district like this, Watson. Restaurants are particular about keeping their custom. 
No, it will, it'll be when Basildon leaves the place. He's unwise enough to walk towards Soho Square to find a cab, as is most likely. The digs will almost certainly follow. A scuffle, a flash of a knife, and then it will all be over. Yes, but, but what do we do? Uh, look across the road near the entrance. Raoul and some friends are ready. So, so is that waiting three-wheeler. Ah, there's some movement. Come on, Watson. Battledon's about to leave. We must get to him before Diggs Baker does. Come on. Well, evening, sir. Nice evening. You've been eating a cab, sir. Oh, no, thank you. I shall walk. Oh, I wouldn't do that, sir. Not if I was you. It's dangerous. Much better to come with me. This way, if you please. No, look here. I guess you want trouble, and so... No, no, that ain't wiser. Come on, come on, please. The street suddenly seemed filled with activity. Three men seized James Basildon, and within seconds a pad of chloroform was placed over his face. The cab moved forward. Raoul, Holmes and I clambered in beside the half-unconscious form of Basildon, and we set out at a spanking pace for Baker Street. Once in our rooms, Basildon was given a heavy sleeping draught, and I was told to watch over him. Holmes left once again, and I guessed he was going to interview the man who had caused all this trouble, Peter Cottrell. You are Peter Cottrell? That is correct. Who are you? How dare you force your way into this hotel room? My name is Sherlock Holmes. You're lucky to be dealing with me and not with our Metropolitan Police or even Scotland Yard. What are you talking about? Get out of here. No, no, no. You are the person who is going to get out. Get out of the country and keep out. I'd also advise you to stay away from your home in America and the clutches of Amos Feltman, the moneylender in whose pay you have been for many months. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. How dare you accuse me of having dealings with moneylenders? Now stop blustering, Cottrell. James Basildon knows the truth. We have proof of your activities and Philip Basildon's debts have been made public back in Boston. I'm offering you your one chance to escape from the charge of attempted murder. The man Diggs Baker is prepared to give evidence. Now, will you listen to reason? What, what, what are you going to do? Nothing, if you obey my instructions. You still have a reasonable amount of money in your account at the bank. Tomorrow you will withdraw it all and buy a ticket on the next packet steamer for France. Once there, you will quietly disappear. If you appear again either in London or Boston, I will have you arrested. The choice is yours. Either make your own way somewhere else in the world or face ruin and imprisonment. Well, Cottrell, what do you say? Holmes returned surprisingly early and related all that had occurred. James Basildon was fast asleep in the spare room. I kept the adjoining door open during the night in case he woke, but he didn't. It was quite late the next morning when he opened his eyes. Oh, 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 oh my head. Where the devil am I? Uh, you've woken up at last. That is good. How do you feel? Oh, who the heck are you? What am I doing here? I, I haven't been asleep. I've been drugged. I remember now. I was in that restaurant in Greek Street. I came out and I was attacked. Now, I demand an explanation for it. How dare you hold me here against my will? You are not being held against your will. You have been brought here for your own good. There was a plot against you. You're a very lucky man, Mr. Basildon. Plot against me? What the devil are you talking about? And how, how do you know my name? What does all this mean? I not only know your name, I know all about you. Your failed marriage, your dying uncle, your trip to Europe. I also know more about you than you know yourself. Oh, stop talking nonsense. If I'm being held here against my will, then kindly order me a cab and let me return to my hotel. Perhaps my friend Peter Cottrell can sort this out. Your friend Peter Cottrell is not at the Grosvenor House Hotel. And you will be surprised to hear that he is not your friend, but your most deadly enemy. Now, Mr. Basildon, you rise and don a dressing gown? Over a good old-fashioned English breakfast of eggs and bacon and Indian tea, I will explain to you in great detail how you are now still living 
and able to enjoy life on the Basildon estate. At first, James Basildon was reluctant to accept our hospitality. But he could see that neither Holmes nor I were the criminals he first took us to be. He was a very puzzled man as he sat at our dining table and toyed with breakfast as Holmes went over the case from the very beginning. As Holmes told the tale, the skepticism gradually faded from Basildon's face and an expression of wonderment grew in his eyes. The disbelief vanished when Holmes explained that his wife had brought the investigation about and that it was through her love and loyalty that Cottrell's treachery had been exposed. I was forced to do a little bluffing in the end. Of course I told Cottrell that I had proof of his dealings with Amos Feltman, the money dealer. I hadn't. I told him also that your cousin Philip's debts were well known. They aren't. I also told him that Diggs Baker was prepared to give evidence against him. He isn't. In fact, Diggs is getting off extremely well with £100 in cash for a crime he wasn't able to commit. Unfortunately, we cannot bring him to book. Not this time. But his type will be caught eventually. Before he does another killing, I hope. But if he goes free, at least you are free also. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, if all you say is true, then I am forever in your debt. I owe you my life. It still seems quite incredible that Peter Cottrell could have, well, deceived me in such a fashion, but I suppose I have to face the facts. I guess I've been just plain stupid. I should have listened to my wife. Yes, yes, I think you should. But she's still at the Westbury Hotel, not far from here. When you've finished your breakfast, perhaps you'd like to take a cab round there? Ah, I most certainly will. Thank you, again, both of you. Is there anything else I can do for you? Well, there is one thing... I guess I'll never get used to drinking tea. Do you think I might beg a cup of strong coffee before I go? Listen again next Sunday to The Stories of Sherlock Holmes with Graham Armitage's Holmes and Kerry Jordan as Dr. Watson.